house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. The pooch. This could put a big dent in my surgeries. Big time. I have gone just about as far as I can go with this body. Right. Hello. Osborne Cox? Yes. I thought you might be worried about the security of your shit. I've been working on What you're engaged in is blackmail. I'm a mere good Samaritan. Give me the CDs and, you and give I'll us be the a- money, dickwad. He didn't give it to me. Uh, who's Farrer? It's messy. He is screwing Mrs. Cox. Pull around the corner, we'll do it in the back. What's that cool? Back of the car, not the rear entry situation. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that knows that Christopher Nolan's dead wife complex originates with George Clooney's butt. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with the securer of my top secret shit, uh, Joe Reed. Chris, how are you? Uh, you will be I, we, prominent I, in my memoirs, just so you know. <laughs> my memoirs. <laughs> my memoirs and my Masha are uh, are close cousins. I feel like in the in our little universe. I need a movie where uh, Malkovich says uh, my Malkovich Masha memoirs. <laughs> Malkovich Malkovich my memoirs my Masha memoirs memoirs Masha 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 <laughs> Masha Masha May Marlene <laughs> is my favorite Sundance <laughs> Film Festival movie of all time. Masha memoirs Malkovich Malkovich. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Good. We're producing movies on this uh, Sunday morning. <laughs> on the Sunday morning where we are uh, coasting on uh, positive energy, so to say. I know. Our first podcast recording of the uh, of the new era, of, a, of, of an era of me not feeling dread quite so constantly all the time. So right. that's nice. Uh, we, uh, lots of work still to do. Lots of work still to do. We're in, a, we're in a pandemic, yada, yada, yada. But I, I am a very big proponent of uh, feel these good feelings. They are not yeah. always around. So feel them. Smoke them while you got them is essentially my uh, my my motto for right now. I, uh, I enjoyed the um, uh, rare uh, pre-noon bourbon yesterday (laughs) (laughs) very good very good i feel very jealous of the west coast people who got that news like promptly as they were like waking up just like (laughs) instead of like the rooster crowing outdoors it was just like people banging on pots and pans that's fun that's good (laughs) good times uh well before we get into this movie which i'm really excited to talk about kind of a weird uh, case yeah. for our purposes in that like <laughs> we we become the charlie day uh it's always sunny they, uh, <laughs> meme of like look at all of these intricacies of how this uh, uh came to be uh but we uh we still have uh something to uh hype up on the podcast guys 
We're still taking listener choice uh, submissions for our end of the year listener's choice episode. Once again, we are taking submissions entirely by you, and I am tallying all the votes. The top four will be the Twitter poll that you can all duke it out and have a battle royale. Top four mentioned movies that we hear from you guys are going to be the ultimate options for the big episode. So you can either tweet at us at hat underscore Oscar underscore buzz, the movie that you want us to cover on our listener's choice episode, or you can email us at hat Oscar buzz at gmail.com. Just as a reminder, has to have been in some type of Oscar consideration with no nominations uh, and uh, only one vote per person. It's been very None of these interesting. Uh, people sending multiple options. Yeah, yeah. If you do that, we're going to take the first one that you list and none of the other ones. So Listen, so we've know. we've all learned a lot about how uh, voter fraud does or does not occur. <laughs> right, but we will not stand for this. We will dispatch Rudy Giuliani <laughs> to the closest lumberyard that you have. You get and... the one. You get the one. Uh, yeah, definitely yeah. some uh, exciting things coming into play. But you guys have about two more weeks to do that. We're going to be doing that all through November. Then at the uh, top of December, you'll get the Twitter poll. We'll make sure that you know when it's coming. Yes. But yeah, tweet at us, had underscore Oscar underscore buzz, or email us at hadoscarbuzz at gmail. Very exciting. Good job. Good housekeeping. Very exciting. Very exciting. Uh, Joseph. Yes. Uh, you know what we could do, uh, with all of those, uh, bids, those tweets and, uh, emails that we get for our listeners choice when we're done with them. What could we do? We could burn them. We could burn them. <laughs> I don't know if we'd burn them. They're all no. We wouldn't to burn us. them. I was just trying to find a smooth. It's not a bad segue. Segue back into our movie. Uh, something that I'm not uh, uh, very skilled at doing. So I, I am a blunt instrument. Watching kind of like uh, Malkovich's blunt uh, axe that he carries through the. Yes, the, the fact that that was foreshadowed when he was just sort of like angrily stopping down, stomping down that boat pier. I was uh, I was pretty impressed by. This is a. Sort of tightly compact little movie. Okay, tell me if you felt this too. I Because I watched this sort of as this current election was being called, and now we're in this very sort of transitional time from a period of darkness to a period of uh, some optimism, I really, really situated myself in the 2008-ness of... Burn After Reading. This movie was Mm -hmm. released in September of 2008, so like just a couple months before the uh, first Obama election. It was an incredibly, for me, evocative time. Like, not only is that election going on, but like the financial crisis is also happening in September, and uh, Mm -hmm. that doesn't really apply too much to Burn After Reading, but a lot of my uh, read, no pun intended, on Burn After Reading has a lot to do with this kind of, it almost felt like shoveling dirt onto the Bush era of, um, not exactly foreign policy, but, and we've done movies that, that deal with the sort of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war of the two thousands. We've done rendition. We've done lions for lambs. There are a lot of movies that sort of like took that, era of Bush foreign policy head on. And I think Burn After Reading feels like a very Coen Brothers-y, um, sarcastic, irreverent, disrespectful uh, eulogy for the Bush administration, which is just like, 
what like what was this experience of having just these doofuses in charge of everything and Mm -hmm. having absolutely no sense of like making heads or tails of anything and they didn't know what direction they were going in and whatever and i thought wow like the the difference in and of course i'm sure at the time of the 2008 election especially when like things were looking like the the sarah palin star power might actually you know help to power uh Mm -hmm. mccain through i'm sure i was nervous as fuck back then and i don't remember any of those emotions i remember the hopefulness and the um sort of the eagerness and all of that but looking back on that era now from this era and i'm like the way that we characterize getting out of a destructive administration then versus now is really different whereas like now we're all sort of like stumbling out of this one and part of it is obviously we're still in a pandemic but like we're stumbling out of this one like battered and bruised and barely survived and we're you know celebrating it now but like the celebration comes from the fact that like oh we let the dumbest people in charge and it's not funny or silly or bumbling like it got dangerous it got incredibly dangerous and i just don't i don't know if and i'm sure it's not like whatever whatever burn after reading version that might exist in 2020 2021 um would have a very different vibe to it is my guess I mean, like, if they're, uh, to a certain extent, yes, I also kind of had to remind myself that this is, like, a, um, a, a, if not intended as a closing document on the Bush era, um, but, like, somewhat of a comment on just, like, the tenor of, uh, paranoia and, uh, haplessness, um, right. within that administration. Like, I kind of had to remind myself because there is a certain level to burn after reading where it just plays now that it's just, like, it fits just very comfortably, um, generally speaking, uh, along the Cohen brothers, like, uh, oeuvre of, uh, people who are fatally stupid. Yes. Um, uh, and like that's um to a certain extent like the the trump administration and like their fatal stupidity like perhaps the cohen's are the only one who could capture it and it's like if you want to read this movie through that lens or interpret it through that lens and how it might relate it's like all of these non-governmental characters are right. the trump administration right uh characters um but like but if those people were not even just like benignly dim-witted like Brad Pitt's character in this is like I would say like ultimate benign dim-wittedness but like we're like that level of stupid but also like dark-hearted and ill-intentioned <laughs> right <laughs> like, right it's just like I mean the, whatever we've we've heard the the horse in the hospital analogy before and it's just <laughs> um there's we're still we're going to spend a long time trying to actually like come up How? with the words to convey like what we've been feeling for the last four years. Uh, sure, 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 sure. In the context of like burn after reading and the context it came out, I feel like this is a much easier movie to just enjoy yeah. now because yes. I definitely think at the time and like maybe in a way that like we didn't directly associate it to the Bush administration or is this movie as a comment on the Bush administration um, 
at least with like wider audiences. I remember like seeing this in college and like talking about it with other students and such. And um, not everybody got that, but a lot of people were just really kind of put off by the misanthropy of this. Mm, yes. Um, well, and it's interesting, it, this movie and, uh, I mean, the Coen Brothers filmography has had no shortage of people dissecting it and sort of, you know, coming up with their grand theories of the Coens and their eras and their their tendencies and what are this kind of Coens movie versus that kind of Coens movie. And Burn After Reading is one of two movies that I would consider Oscar hangover movies, which the first one was The Big Lebowski, which came right after mm-hmm. Fargo. And Fargo had sort of... Um, really shot the Coens to the best picture race. And everybody was sort of people who didn't know what a Coen Brothers movie was, even if they maybe had seen Raising Arizona or, you know, Barton Fink or something before that. But like now all of a sudden there's this conception of what a Coen Brothers movie is and what the Coen Brothers are to like, you know, good, great filmmaking. And then The Big Lebowski comes along as the follow up to Fargo. And there's no. <laughs> I at certainly at the time uh, you can you know you can read meaning into the Big Lebowski. I think it's certainly possible, but it was definitely viewed as just this like what is this silly stoner bizarre Weird. thing? Yeah. Why does this guy look like Saddam Hussein? What is it trying to say? Is it trying to say anything? Is there any real depth in this, or is this just like a big dumb comedy? And like, what a letdown it was for a lot of people who were expecting like the next level up from Fargo, and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And Burn After Reading, to an even more extreme degree, I think partially because I don't think it's quite as good of a movie as The Big Lebowski, but also because it, like at least The Big Lebowski was following up a comedy like Fargo's a dark comedy but it's still a comedy right. whereas Burn After Reading is silly and stupid and not I'm not necessarily saying stupid as a pejorative um in direct contrast to maybe the Coen Brothers most serious movie darkest movie for sure no country for old it men still has humorous elements it does, to it or maybe course. I'm just no the, it does but I'm I mean just the uh chaos agent that laughs their ass off during that movie but like um, but as for a coen brothers movie it's incredibly sure, dark and sure, serious sure, sure, sure. and it won and best like picture the most fatalistic of yeah. their movies are among it totally um yes and it won best picture but like they weren't courting oscar with that movie it's just like it right uh it just ended up steamrolling the season. We as a culture decided it was the Coen's time. I don't think they've ever really courted Oscar. I feel like that's just not a thing. To the point where they actively like work against it. They didn't, they like intentionally didn't do anything for Hail Caesar, Buster Scruggs. They didn't. And like still those movies get recognized. Right. Yes. Yes. But yeah, I think burn after reading, I think a lot of people, sort of saw as a thumbing of you know their nose at the at the expectations that followed no country which i think is doesn't really follow even from a timeline perspective because like burn after reading would have been well into the the works by the time no country wins the oscar yeah, they had a he- they had a long uh, like time to produce another movie because No Country premiered at Cannes and then had to wait a whole other six months right. to even be released, right. and then another six months of Oscar. But I think the other thing is 
it's easy to see burn after reading as a sort of like middle finger to something because it's a it's a middle finger in and of itself it's a middle finger right. to its own plot by the end of the movie you know what i mean it's such a it's such a lark that by the end and i think the end is like audacious in a way that like i really respect even though like it's like it absolutely it's like such a shoves its thumb in the wound of people who were pissed off by the no country ending, which is basically yeah. like, yeah, well, nothing fucking means anything. Well, and this movie's like, no, in case you didn't get anything, uh, nothing means anything. And it's not even nothing means anything, but just like the the whole idea of trying to follow a a a, a thriller plot. This movie is just like whatever shit happened, <laughs> and now it's over. I guess like. The world is run by idiots yeah. and uh, people of bad intent. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but like or self involvement. This movie is more like this. I don't think is a movie about people who like have bad intentions, but are just like so self involved and like can't see past their own noses. Yes, and like that is not only what makes them stupid in the Cohen Cohen's eyes, but also like what is their ultimate demise. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Also, sort of dialing back to how much of this was an intentional or unintentional commentary on the Bush years. And I do feel like there was definitely intent there. But um, did the scene where Elizabeth Marvel is reading a children's book on a morning news show feel like an intentional (laughs) callback to, like, not plot-wise or anything like that, but, like, that's a um, My Pet Goat illusion, right? A little bit? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, maybe I can't imagine Elizabeth Marvell being the uh, George W. Bush. No, um, I, that's why I mean, like, I don't think it like goes any farther than the. Tip but of just its like nose, the yeah. imagery yeah. and the like, what it's trying to evoke um, is very subtle throughout yeah. the movie. Yeah, well, great cast. Like that's the thing is like at the at this point in the Coen Brothers' career, like they. There is no actor who they can't get. So, like, every cast feels incredibly very intentional. And this particular cast was, like, with if you didn't know that this movie had been in the works for a long time, you, you could be probably convinced somebody that they gathered up the people at the 2007 Academy Awards and were like, do you want to make a movie together? Because it's literally, like, it's Francis who was, you know, there with... Uh, with Joel Cohen, obviously her husband. Yeah. Uh, Clooney and Tilda Swinton together again after Michael Clayton. And um, I guess, no, this would have been the same year as uh, Pitt with Benjamin Button and Richard Jenkins with The Visitor. So I guess it's, it's like, it feels very much like the moment. Oh, and J.K. Yeah. Simmons, who was, uh, you know, known to everybody by that by this point as the dad in Juno, so mm-hmm. which was a 2007 Oscar nominee. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting to sort of view it through that lens. It really, it, I was not expecting to be uh, transported to 2008, like sort of astral projected that way, as much as I was by this movie. Because this movie is not a nostalgic movie, but like, I just really remember the uh, the place and time that I was. You can't really even say like, backlash against this movie this movie was incredibly financially successful i'm pretty sure it was the first uh cohen's number one movie at the box office oh that's interesting yeah um like this was a successful movie even though like i think it pissed 
quite a few people off and uh yeah just with like because i think with that level of, of success people are expecting uh to be a little bit more handheld whereas like this is probably one of the more misanthropic uh yeah not like audience hating cohen movies but like i don't think it hates its audiences i think as many cohen brothers movies do it does not have a ton of pity for its own characters and no uh, audiences uh, react to that i feel like on a spectrum right like sometimes we're we're more in the mood for that and sometimes we're less in the mood for that and i think more than anything what burn after reading does is takes the expectations of this genre where this genre feels very it's it's a plotty genre like it's a genre that wants its audiences to be hanging on every twist and turn in the plot and trying to figure it out and that's what those scenes with jk simmons and david rash basically are are just like what how can we make sense of this what's going on and ultimately it's just like a bunch of fuck-ups did their own thing and were at cross purposes (laughs) with each other and intersected at different times and half of them ended up dead because of it for literally no reason and for ultimately this like great piece of like intel which was his fucking memoirs like the cd of his like weird and sad little memoirs and it's uh, okay this memoir though and they like get it on this disc they think it's a cia thing like what is this weird house of leaves memoir that he is writing (laughs) that's like looks like code uh I mean, who you get the sense that this guy is real up his own ass in terms of his estimations of his own intelligence. Like, he definitely, Malkovich's character in this movie thinks he's so much smarter than everybody in the room. You can see the contempt on his face when he's at this cocktail party with his wife, where it's just like, you, you know, you're better than all these people. He goes to his little Harvard or uh, Princeton reunion. It's this, you know, masters of the universe kind of a thing. And that's what informs the way he reacts to Brad Pitt trying to extort him, where it's just like, you're the dumbest person I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm so mad, not at you necessarily, but just that like that you would presume to do something this idiotic. It's it's a I mean, a great performance by by both of those people. I think everybody in this cast is really doing a really good job. Everybody's pretty outstanding in this movie. Yeah. Um and like we can get into it, but in a way that, like, everybody can kind of probably come away from this movie with a different uh, favorite takeaway performance. Yes. And that's probably why, yes. you know, this didn't register on a performance level. Yep. I find it kind of baffling that it's not, uh, doesn't, especially at this time, create uh, more noise for Brad Pitt. But as you mentioned, it, like, the story that year for him was Benjamin Button. We'll definitely talk about Brad Pitt. I love Brad Pitt in this movie. It's so, so good. Um, maybe we should get into the 60-second plot description. Perhaps we should. Joseph. Yes. This week you are tasked with the 60-second plot description. I am. Your movie is... Joel and Ethan Coen's Burn After Reading, written and directed by the Coens, starring George Clooney, Francis McDormand, John Malkovich, Tilda Swinton, Brad Pitt, uh, Richard Jenkins, J.K. Simmons, David Rash, and the wonderful, our beloved Elizabeth Marvell. Movie premiered out of competition at Venice and then opened wide September 12th, 2008. Indeed. Joseph. Yes. You ready for the uh, 60-second plot description of Burn After Reading? Sure. Okay, your time starts 
now. Okay, John Malkovich plays a CIA analyst who's retiring and planning to write his memoirs, while at the same time, unbeknownst to him, his wife, Tilda Swinton, is planning to divorce him. She's carrying on an affair with George Clooney, a hyperactive type who works for the Treasury Department, is cheating on his wife, and is secretly working on inventing a dildo chair. Meanwhile, Malkovich's disc containing his memoirs, which may or may not uh, contain sensitive information, gets left at the gym and is found by gym employees uh, Brad Pitt and Francis McDormand. He's a real doofus. She's hell-bent on getting four surgeries to improve her appearance, and together they think they can get money out of Malkovich in return for his shit. They're in over their heads. Malkovich punches Pitt in the nose. Pitt later goes snooping at Malkovich and Tilda's house, where Clooney is now staying, and when he's surprised by Pitt hiding in his closet, Clooney shoots him in the head and he's dead. Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, Clooney and McDormand go out on some dates, totally unaware of their connections. Poor Richard Jenkins is Pitt McDormand's boss and tries to investigate what they're doing, and Malkovich catches him snooping and murders him in the street like a crazy person, so the CIA shoot Malkovich and Clooney goes on the run, and Pitt and Jenkins are dead, and Francis won't get her surgeries, and in the end, J.K. Simmons is like, that was weird, and it's over. And that's time. Right. Can't believe you got it all in there, but you did. I did. Can I say the the thing that, like, I like this movie way more now than I did at first, but the thing that still annoys me, that feels like, I don't want to say lazy, but like a holdover from lesser movies, uh-huh. is the way that everybody is connected in this movie. I mean, I think that's part of the thing right that's sort of the the fact that like all of these connections are so incredibly dumb and random and tenuous like the whole Clooney starts dating Francis because they were like fixed up on a dating site is right George Clooney is just having uh affairs with everyone in this movie do you remember in the um absolutely perfect uh 1992 film sneakers when um Fran- or M- uh, Mary McDonnell gets caught snooping in Stephen Tobolowsky's uh, uh, stuff, and he brings her to uh, the company he works at, which is Ben Kingsley's company, where they're trying to snoop. And he's almost ready to let them go, and then Tobolowsky's like, that's the last time I go on a computer date. And and Kingsley's like, wait a second, a computer fixed you and you up? He's like, I'm not buying it, something's going on. Like, that's sort of what I got to with this Clooney McDormand thing where I was just like this character and this character like got fixed up by like a a dating site like that is so that's the one part where I was just like well this is just silly like we can't we can't be expected (laughs) yeah all the dating stuff all the dating site stuff on this movie feels like even outdated for the time and maybe that's the intention uh but it's yes it is very uh silly and funny I don't know I guess the like the in a certain way it's like the this bundle of idiots forms their own bubble where like only violence can happen um but the but, violence is all incredibly like i don't know random I guess it just and felt like yeah no i get what you're i get what you're it, saying well we talked about when we did suburbicon which was like a 20 year old coen brothers script yeah. which is the only time we've ever really talked about the coens on this podcast so far um, it felt a little bit like a dated thing that maybe this screenplay had been sitting around for a while. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. No, that's, you know, you're not entirely wrong, but I do feel like the, the, I mean, it's, it feels like a cheat to just sort of like write off everything that is perhaps not great about this movie as just like, well, it's dumb on purpose. But like, I think a lot of burn after reading is dumb on purpose and, it's it's a lark of a movie that like I think 
comes off better than some of I think this is generally viewed as low to middle Cohen's. I've seen some people sort of like stick up for it as like secretly great. I think it's middle Cohen's. I think it's fine that it's middle Cohen's. I think it doesn't really um certainly does not have the ambition to be like one of their great movies and that's fine. It's there are, there are good moments and then there are you know sort of like whatever moments essentially. I don't think any of it is yeah, really Yeah, I just I think it, you're right about the like ambition note about what this movie is. It does kind of feel um less hefty. Um Yeah. Even though like uh, there's a there's a reason to uh you know explore the movie for like weightier subject matter or like whatever it wants to say about human nature is all uh Coen Brothers movies do. Right. Um I don't know. I would probably put it towards the middle uh top. I'm not someone who likes um the like overt silly uh Coen Brothers movies like uh, Raising Arizona is great but like I don't really want to watch that movie that often. Yeah. Uh I hate Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Right. But like I think like I think a movie we I said it previously but like The Big Lebowski is a much much better version of the sort of overtly silly Coens to me. Yes, yes. But um I wanted to mention this movie has two of the biggest surprise moments I can remember in movies in terms of just like stuff that happens and I was just entirely gobsmacked by it. One of which it turns out is really well foreshadowed in this movie and just not in a way that I had remembered from the last time. The part where Clooney shoots Pitt in the head, which yes. I remember when I saw it, my entire audience just fucking freaked out and gasped. Um, but that's really well foreshadowed. He mentions the gun so many times. It's literally just like it's a Chekhov exercise where how many times he mentions that he's never fired his gun in the 20 years that he's owned it. And he's talking and droning on forever about, you know, the fact that he has a gun for his job as a as a marshal. And it really sets you up. And then in that half a second right before it happens, when when Pitt looks to the empty holster in the closet and your brain like makes all those connections like in a snap second it's a really really good moment but it's a mm-hmm. it was a shock <laughs> you're not prepared for the dildo chair the dildo chair truly comes out of nowhere and it's <laughs> well because you think that he's downstairs in his like man cave uh basement working on like a stealth bomber or something like that yeah right like yes yeah yeah. yeah, something that's going to have international implications or whatever guard uh dragon tattoo where you're like (laughs) oh he's going to uh maybe keep a person down here right but it's so you're just you're just not and it's so funny that visual of the first time it just sort of like pops up from beneath (laughs) the apparatus acidly rocks back that's so funny like people don't talk about that moment enough because it's just like incredibly well well executed um and just deeply insane uh uh, yeah um what do you think of clooney in this movie this is an interesting moment for clooney obviously i mentioned it's right after michael clayton which to my mind after we just talked about clooney um yeah we're doing back-to-back cloonies which is interesting um the uh, clooney feels like the least like story to talk about this movie with, even right. though I do think he's fantastic. George Clooney doesn't always get to play these like paranoid uh, idiots. He's usually playing somebody with like a certain degree of competence 
or um, star charisma. And like, this is the time I think he maybe works against it the most. And I do think he's really funny in the movie. I think the Coens like this flavor of Clooney because he's kind of antic Mm -hmm. in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou as well. And I think the Coen brothers like to work against that kind of cool, that Clooney coolness, right? Um, which we, you mm-hmm. see in stuff like Ocean's Eleven and, um, you know, other stuff like that, or even like dramatic Clooney stuff. And the Coen brothers, I think, like to put him in a position to seem a little foolish and see what he does with that. And I think this is a big example of that. He's opposite for the most part of this movie, either Tilda Swinton or Francis McDormand. And it's, it's interesting, like distinct vibes in both of those things. I think I love Tilda Swinton and I think Tilda Swinton is cast to essentially be, um, frightening in this movie and like on like an interpersonal (laughs) level where it's just like can you imagine if she ever like fixed her eyes on you and like called you inadequate like what would you do it's just so yeah but i think the best gag (laughs) but in a very atypical way to what you might expect tilda swinton to do that it's just like she is such a monumental um grouch and asshole in this movie that that's what's disarming not that she's like um uh, a snow queen for lack of a better word Uh, right she's literally played a snow queen before right um and you would think in a film that's as much about the cia as this is that you would expect her to be um a spy or a mm -hmm. a, a, you know a official someone a little bit more maneuvering when really she isn't she is once again she's the most superfluous to the plot of this movie she really doesn't have almost she has almost nothing to do with the plot of this movie except for the fact that she facilitates Clooney being in the house which is when he kills Pitt but I think the movie does like go to lengths to give like all of these characters a certain level of autonomy and background. And hers is basically she's a pediatric doctor. The fact <laughs> hers is the least. This is what out. I was just building up to is casting Tilda Swinton as a pediatrician is maybe the funniest gag in this whole movie. And it's played completely a straight. Pediatrician face. who hates kids. That's the thing. It's just like, what can you imagine in your mind's eye? Tilda Swinton taking on any number of jobs. If she's, we've seen her, you know, she's a, a criminal in certain movies and she's a, a heiress in certain movies and she's a singer in a movie and she's a, whatever, like a cult leader in a movie. But like, you cannot. Vampire. Right, exactly. But like, trying to picture Tilda Swinton as a uh, pediatrician and like this is what you get which is just like the iciest most pitiless like just like looks a hole right through any child she's working on and it's so funny like just the concept of it is so funny and they don't really lean on it too much and they don't like you know push their thumb down on the scales for it at all they just let it be as just like we have cast Tilda Swinton as a pediatrician how fucking insane is that Everybody in this movie is cast at least somewhat atypically in ways that I think make the movie funnier. Like, even Frances McDormand, who, like, in this era is when she's really starting to get cast a lot as, like... Salty. Quiet curmudgeons. Yes. Um, Well, I wanted to look at the sort of the interim... This This is a film that comes almost directly in the middle of 
her two Oscar wins, right? Where mm-hmm. she wins uh, in 96 for Fargo. She wins again for Three when Billboards. When did she win her Tony? This is around the time she won the Tony. She won her Tony in like 2010, I'm pretty sure. Feel yeah. free to correct me on that. But I think it's not too long after this. But so there was a moment there where she won the Oscar for Fargo. And then we didn't quite know what to do with her, right? Like her follow-ups to Fargo are really kind of interesting. Where it's uh, Madeline. Um, the, the yeah. children's movie Madeline, <laughs> and then her big year in two thousand, which we just very recently talked about on the this uh, the Little Gold Men podcast, where she's in Wonder Boys and Almost Famous the same year. She gets awards buzz for both. She gets nominated for Almost Famous, but in that one, she's the the woman Michael Douglas is having an affair with in Wonder Boys, and then she's the mom in Almost Famous. So both of those are like definitely supporting roles. She's supporting in The Man Who Wasn't There. She's fantastic in that. And then, like, Laurel Canyon's actually a really interesting role where she plays this sort of uh, refugee from the late 60s music scene in California. And she's sort of, like, very ill-fit to be someone's mother. She's Alessandra's Navola's mother. She's, you know, it was an interesting movie. Um, and then it's, like, and then it's just a collection of supporting roles in things like something's got to give she's diane keaton's sort of uh, acerbic sister she gets nomination for north country playing uh does she have als like early stages als in north country i believe so and she's like very you know again like salty that's like we're getting towards salty and then friends with money she's um again she's this like rich lady but like there's a real edge to her and so I think that's that turn that you're talking about is sort of those roles are pushing her in the direction of what she eventually we get in like Olive Kittredge, Three Billboards, uh, Nomadland, which is like three very different flavors, but it's all very much just like salt of the earth, uh, you know, iron rod of a of a woman kind of a thing mm-hmm. and various degrees of hard. And then this, not necessarily an expressive person. Right. And then 2008 is a real, um, goes against that in a couple of ways. Burn After Reading, which we're, we're talking about. But then she's in Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day, which is this very fancy little, um, light British comedy. Um, or is it British? Yes, it's in London. Yes. Uh, it, it's technically British, starring like almost all, all Americans. American <laughs> right. Cause it's her and Amy Adams. And I think that's a really cute movie. I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters in 2008, but. And she, she did win her Tony in 2011. Um, so it was, it was right after Burn After Reading. Yeah. Yes. Um, the same year she is in Transformers 3. That Tony Award speech. There's so many elements of that I love. A, obviously the jean jacket is fantastic. B, she gives that, like, I think I've mentioned that before, that, like, low five to Alan Barkin as she's running up to the stage, which is so funny to me. Her speech is obviously, like, fantastic. That was also, I've told this story before, where I saw her in that play, and she stopped stopped the scene in its tracks because somebody answered their phone in the balcony. Some old lady answered her ringing phone and she stopped Ray Ailey Scoldsbury in the middle of their scene together. And we're just like, we're going to wait until this person stops. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Amazing. Indeed. That was the like peak era of uh, stories like that coming out of 
cell phones and theaters. Right. That was not too long after Patti LuPone had that glorious. Who do you think you are? So good. Amazing. Um, yeah, so this is a really atypical role for Frances McDormand. You're right. I can't think of any any other role where she um, plays this type of character. She's very vain. She's dumb. You usually think you usually project. She's intelligence the most upon expressive Francis. character in this movie. Like the most like revealing of who they are to everyone. You know, like yes. she's not guarded, but she's not super likable either. Like that's the thing is. It's, I mean, she's likable because Fran's likable. Right. But that's the only reason. Like, this woman is, um, again, she's vain. She's not very smart. She doesn't um, seem to have a ton of concern. She's, like, outwardly mean to Richard Jenkins, even though Richard Jenkins is obviously in love with her. Um, when, like, the slightest thing goes wrong in her and Brad Pitt's little scheme, she's just, like, she's just snapping at him and whatever. <laughs> And it's tough to really, like, sympathize. I mean, her whole thing throughout this movie is she's trying to do this scheme to extort John Malkovich because she wants money for her four surgeries so that she can, um, you know, whatever. Because it's denied by her insurance. Yeah. That is an angle to this movie that every once in a while feels like the Coens should be preparing to make a comment on the fitness industry, the beauty industry. She wants four plastic surgeries. She works at a gym, this whole thing. And they just resolutely could not give a shit about trying to say something about that whole It's very much like, it's not that deep. It's just stupid and vacuous. I think they were just like, what is a... What is a profession that we could give these non-governmental people that will uh, communicate... uh, extreme dullness and it's just like well people who sit at computers in big box gyms <laughs> yeah basically um although pit we see uh <laughs> there's as a the personal moment, trainer as a personal trainer there's that moment where he's uh training that one guy and the one guy with the medicine ball yes where he's just like <laughs> he's just like i'm pretty sure i just felt my hamstring snap and pit is just like yeah yeah, yeah one second and then just like fully walks away <laughs> There's the other scene where we see him. All right, well, this is where we're going to talk about Brad Pitt. He's my favorite performance of the movie by far. He should have been nominated Absolutely. for an Oscar for it. He's so funny. Truly. The scene of him running on the treadmill where he's pumping his fists as he's running on the treadmill is so funny. Oscar worthy just for that, like, two seconds. All of right his there. physical that's, comedy. That's your Oscar. Do we get in the movie? I Okay, I fully own that I may have been, like, slightly distracted while I watched this movie. Did we get the part that's in the trailer where he's dancing in the office and, like, snapping his fingers? Does that happen in the movie or does that yes, get cut out? Yes, it definitely does. Okay, good, good, good. I am also a little foggy because I uh, watched this immediately before the news yeah. arrived. Um, I watched it sometime after. So we were we were in a uh, celebration fog. haze. Yeah. Um, no, but... Uh, it, the, 
Yes, you do get that moment in there. Also, another moment that should have gotten him an Oscar nomination for this movie. Um, I think, like, one of the... Every time I've seen it, one of the, like, happiest surprises about this movie, aside from the fact that what he is doing is completely unwell and, like, is just constantly funny by existing um, in this movie, I love his chemistry with Frances McDormand in this movie, and it yes. is not... Um, something i anticipate anytime i watch it i am a real sucker i'm a real sucker for platonic chemistry in a movie in a a thing where it's just like there is no hint of sexual tension or romance and yet they're both as far as we know like she's definitely heterosexual he could be gay we don't really have we don't really get a sense of you know his romantic life at all but like there's they're just co-workers and colleagues and like friends slash collaborators in this little scheme or whatever and it's they're cronies and it really sort of draws a line to the idea that like oh we don't let like nine out of ten movies francis's role is a man right or like that like that 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 kind of relationship is just like two guys two just like bumbling dudes like bumbling through and we don't allow or if like Women it's a Cohen's play. movie, it's two like hill jacks, right? <laughs> right. Right, exactly. And they just get to like play together, which I think is fun. Mm-hmm. And they like bounce off of each other. And he's so manic and all of his expressions are really big. And the phone call I think some of that dynamic though that like you're describing comes from the fact that like the way that Brad Pitt and the Coens characterize Brad Pitt's character is, like, obviously, like, vain. He has the frosted tips and everything, but I don't think Brad Pitt has ever been less sexualized on screen than in this movie. And he's supposed to be playing, like, a hot uh-huh. gym instructor, right. but, like, there's nothing about it that is sexy. But he's so—I still think he's, like, the the type of silly he is, I think, is very cute. Like, I think it's still, like, it's cute, Brad Pitt. Like, he's so... The scene where they're both on the phone trying to extort John Malkovich, and he just has that line about, like, I thought you'd like to know about the security of your shit. It's so (laughs) dumb and funny. It's so well done. Every single line reading of his in this movie is perfect. And... The just like the the guilelessness on his face when he's hiding in the closet, even which like even further goes to like set you up so that you're not expecting him to get murdered right in that second because it's just like his the look on his face is just so like it's so light and and uh, you know non that goofy little like shit eating grin. Uh, It's amazing. He's so fantastic in this movie. Okay, so what was the supporting actor situation that that couldn't happen for him? Like what was I mean truly I think it's that Benjamin Button was such a behemoth in this season yeah. that it overshadowed it because on, it's it's surprising to me that only BAFTA nominates Brad Pitt for this movie whereas like and like I'm not going to say anything negative about Benjamin Button I know a lot of people really don't like that movie um and think that he is fine in it I think he's pretty great I think the movie is great but like I don't know. This is the, the like, I, I would definitely chart this performance above it. I just think this was a September movie that was easily, like, kind of wiped under the rug. It was yeah. not, like, there wasn't a universal thought around this movie that, like, a campaign could have hung its head on. It was pretty um, quickly sort of filed away under, 
uh, lesser Coens. People love to talk about, like, oh, that's a minor Coens movie. And this was definitely filed away under that. And you're right. By the time award season really started in earnest, um, they had kind of filed it away. This is a incredibly odd Best Supporting Actor lineup at the Oscars that year. This was obviously the year that Heath Ledger won a posthumous Oscar for The Dark Knight. That was essentially the, like, that was wrapped up all year. Like, all year. Like, perhaps even before The Dark Knight opened, people were talking about it because people, like, the legend around the intensity of this performance was so big because he had died soon after making Mm -hmm. it. And then once the movie opened, and it was a huge hit, and critics really respected it, and they raved about his performance, there was no way he was losing that Oscar. Like, that was a done deal. So it was, the question was, who are the other people who are going to get nominated? And it's Josh Brolin in Milk, who is good playing a villain you know villains tend to do pretty well in best supporting actor that's a year after not really making much headway in no country for old men right but i think that movie really like set the table for him it's just like he, he's a very you know now he's a very respected mm-hmm. actor he's not the kid from the goonies anymore and whatever and so milk is a best picture nominee that year sean penn uh, is on his way to winning the oscar for uh, lead actor in that it makes all the sense in the world that brolin gets nominated for milk it makes a lot of sense that philip seymour hoffman gets nominated for doubt in a role that i think borders on lead in that film um everybody all four major uh principal characters principal performers in that movie get nominated him and meryl and viola and amy adams uh doubt comes incredibly close to getting a best picture nomination and it's generally very well received so like none of that is a surprise either and this is also after the oscars finally got on board with philip seymour hoffman where he wins for Capote in 05, he gets nominated again in 07, and now in 08. And now it's just like the 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 Philip Seymour Hoffman train is well on its way. You know what I mean? Like it has picked up steam and it is now he's an Oscar fave at this point. The other two nominations are Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder, which has which is such there are like 12 different angles to this thing, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. A, it's the very rare pure comedy nomination like it is a nomination from not even just like a comedy but like a dumb comedy not to say that tropic thunder is bad but like it's dumb it's it succeeds in its it, dumbness. it's not a uh, highbrow by there is any no means. highbrow angle to it whatsoever b he's in blackface for 90 percent of it like which is the joke it's not like tropic thunder yeah. thought like it was getting away with something here like that's not to say that that's like the, the blackface joke is the highbrow bit of it but it's also like digging in the ribs of the whole uh charade of the uh like oscar prestige yes uh, yes right that's his whole right Right. the whole reason why he's in blackface is is because who is very much invested yeah right and hollywood does enjoy having a laugh at itself that is still kind of celebratory which is good c Mm -hmm. this is his Big breakthrough year. This is Iron Man, was the huge hit of the summer. People were talking about maybe he'll get a Best Actor nomination for Iron Man. Like, it was that degree of... Psycho. Right, of course. But, like, 
Hollywood. It's about celebrating him and his, uh, like, this really triumphant year that he'd had. He came um, through all, all of the, the addiction yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Like, it couldn't have been, like, there were so many moving parts to that nomination. And yet, because Tropic Thunder has no tether to the rest of that Oscar year, it's the one I always forget when I try and think of who were the mm-hmm. nominees that year. Because it's just like it exists on an island. That nomination exists on an island unto itself. And then the fifth nominee, which was the surprise nomination that year, was Michael Shannon in Revolutionary Road giving, to my mind, a terrible performance that I know a lot of people really oh, love. I, I have complicated feelings about that movie. I think certain things are good and th- certain things are bad. My, To my mind, if you're going to give supporting nominations to that movie, it's Catherine Hahn and David Harbour, who I think are both really fantastic. Right. Um, Michael Shannon is playing, to me, the most irritating role in that movie, which is, ah, the insane man will show us the way. Like, there are so many points in that movie where, like, Michael Shannon as the sort of, like, he's schizophrenic in that movie, right? Like, vaguely mentally ill. But he's, like... It's been a while since I've seen it. He's the one who's just, like, speaking truths and pointing out the flaws in their marriage from, like, an hour spent in their company at dinner or whatever. It's so stupidly annoying. I hate it so much. It makes more sense on the page in the actual And he's chewing so much scenery. It's so annoying. I hate it. But he also derails the movie in a way that, like, he, the movie doesn't work if he doesn't. Well, I might say the movie doesn't work. Like, he, he needs to, like, show up and, like, completely shift the, en- the energy of the movie. Yeah. But, like, that was the crazy surprise nomination in that there wasn't really the... It, there wasn't major precursor attention for that performance right like he wasn't globe nominated i didn't think it, he was globe or sag nominated i want i know at the globes it was tom cruise in tropic thunder which like nobody thought was going to happen at oscar so there really was right, kind of right. a uh a, a hole in that but now i'm gonna look up and see who got sag nominated i don't think it was a marina de tavira one where there was like absolutely no attention before oscar nomination morning no but, like he was definitely the, like the, in the like on pe- when people would make long lists he was yeah. definitely on long list, as was Marina de Tavira at that point. I know, I remember, as in like the days approaching that, those nominations, people were like, "Don't rule out Marina de Tavira," because, um, oh, you know who got nominated at SAG? It was Ledger, Brolin, Downey, Hoffman. It was Dev Patel for Slumdog Millionaire, which a lot of people right, really for, uh, did think absolutely was absolutely a lead performance. At one hundred percent. That's that's the Oscar caveat of well, if they're young enough, they'd stop being leads. They're just like, if right, you are young, right. you You have to age into being a lead, right. Jacob Tremblay. <laughs> yeah. Um Haley Joel Osmond. Yeah. But like also, Michael Shannon did this twice yes because <laughs> he mean, did like, it for nocturnal there was animals more attention to him for nocturnal Jesus. animals but like th- his own co-star had won the supporting globe right. the funniest golden globe win of my lifetime absolutely absolutely listen if you you know wipe your ass and show it to the audience you will get a golden globe for it i'm just saying that is a new yep, precedent yep. that we have set thank you aaron taylor johnson it only makes sense that he wipes his ass and shows it to the audience in nocturnal animals because nocturnal animals is wiping your ass and showing yep. it to the audience the movie it sure is um i still love laura linney in that movie but yes i hate that movie oh yeah me too i despise that movie um anyway backing up okay supporting but- actor Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt should have been nominated over, I think, uh, quite a few of those nominees. Is my is my take. Uh, um, 
I think it's the thing that I always kind of have to remind myself that we could have like, I think this is our 120th episode. Like, and I think uh, we've talked about doing the Coens before. And like this, I always forget was an option for us because you expect it to be a screenplay nominee. And it almost was the screenplay. Like, way the way that original screenplay rolled out this year is absolutely like wild to me um go on <laughs> well the oscar lineup is milk is the winner other nominees are happy go lucky frozen river in bruges and wally which wally didn't have any other major uh, precursor attention beforehand, partly because Writers Guild does not allow animated movies to be nominated in their screenplay categories, which is stupid. which is very stupid. Um, like I don't even know what the like what the pretense of that would be. Like I don't I don't get that. But like Critics Choice still had uh, one screenplay category, as um, did the Golden Globes. Writers Guild nominates it, but like I wonder if one of these other movies wasn't eligible. The thing about Imbruge is like Imbruge had that kind of late surge, especially after Colin Farrell won, won the Golden Globe. Um, yes. The Golden Globe. Yes. So the I, the I, Writers Guild Awards are the hardest ones to look back on as a precursor because mm-hmm. there's so there's many ineligibility thing. Yes, that's the yeah. thing. That's the thing. And so the WGA nominees that year were well, Milk won for Dustin Lance Black, which is what happened at the Oscars. Uh, mm-hmm. But then the other four nominees were not Oscar not nominated. Oscar nominees. It was Burn After Reading. It was Woody Allen's Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which is actually one of my favorite late stage Woody Allen movies. Uh, the Visitor, Tom McCarthy's The Visitor, which was a like lurking beneath the surface mm-hmm. throughout a lot of that Oscar season. I think really could have been if this ha- this is the year before uh, it goes to the Best Picture ten. The Visitor really could have had a chance to be like the tenth Best Picture. Nominee. But at the time. I remember people being like really like fingers crossed that Richard Jenkins makes that best actor lineup because it was it was mm-hmm. there was a lot of question over whether the movie was ultimately going to be uh, seen as too small for that. And then The Wrestler, uh, uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler, written by Robert Siegel, who is uh, somebody I've met in person before and a friend of a friend. So like that was cool. I remember being very uh, writing very hard for that nomination and that didn't happen. Um and then at the Oscars, they were like, hey, we'll keep milk. We're going to shove everybody else aside. And it's going to be happy-go-lucky for Mike Lee in Bruce for Martin McDonough, both, non, n- neither of which are Americans. And I wonder if maybe that was a WGA mm-hmm. thing, um, that neither one of them maybe are in the WGA. Who knows? I may be crazy, but I think McDonough is not because I don't think Three Billboards was nominated for WGA. And I feel like isn't that a thing where like if you're a if you're mostly a playwright, you're just you're not going to be in the WGA because like you're not writing movies, you're writing plays, and then like <laughs> and then all of a sudden you like cross over and it's just like well now I can like I'm already making movies, so what do I need to be in the WGA for? It's but like the ultimate Oscar like five original screenplay nominees is so much wrapped up in like. Like other things like Imbruge is wrapped up in the Colin Farrell thing. Happy go lucky. It was a huge like surprise. I mean, like 
to people who really know what Oscar was going to go for, I don't think it was a surprise that Sally Hawkins wasn't nominated. But like, it was still a little Sally bit of Hawkins, a surprise. Like she had won the Golden Globe. It was Globe. based off of the stats. Like the stats, people were the people who like just like hold like Oscar stats with an iron fist of like this is what will and won't happen. Because she had won at least um, one of the major critics awards. She had won like LA Film she Critics. She won multiple. Yeah. Um, and then the Golden Globe. Critics. And I think when she won yeah. the Golden Globe, people who were like a little bit like, oh, could she do it? And then like she won the Golden Globe and everyone's like, she's gonna do it. But that was well, her speech was like real she was noticeably uncomfortable. She also had to, like, walk up to the stage from, like, the fucking parking lot. I remember that, like, that walk to the stage yeah. took so long because the happy-go-lucky table was, like, literally next to the fire exit. It was so far back. And, um, but that Best Actress year was not only more crowded than you would think, but chaotic because of the Kate Winslet situation where yeah. she had been campaigned in lead for Revolutionary Road and then as supporting for the reader and then on Oscar nomination morning – um, she gets nominated for the reader. My theory has always been that if you looked at the vote totals, you would probably see that Winslet would have had enough votes to be in the top five twice for Best Actress mm-hmm. and once for I Best agree. Supporting Actress. And because you can't be nominated uh, twice in the same category, they knocked out Revolutionary Road because that would have been a lower total than the reader. And then because you can't be nominated for the same performance in two separate categories, they knocked out the reader. And that's how we ended up with what we ended up with. But because that's how we ended up with, I believe, uh, Melissa Leo probably in fifth place. I think that's probably true. You look at the rest of that lineup. Meryl Streep was absolutely running second place that year for doubt. She won the SAG. She won something. Right? Because uh, didn't I think Kate she win won the SAG, SAG? Because Kate Winslet won the reader in supporting. supporting yes. SAG. Kate Winslet yeah. won both at the Globes. She won for Revolutionary Road and the reader at the Globes. I think, yes, Meryl won the SAG uh, in lead for Doubt. So, like, she was definitely like, and that was when we were really ramping up the when is Meryl going to win number three? Like, that was, mm-hmm. that was when the temperature, once the Devil Wears Prada happened, the temperature on that kept going up and up and up. My Right, because uh, the several years where Meryl is the conceivable second place. Right. My particular choice for Best Actress that year was Anne Hathaway and Rachel Getting Married, one of the great performances. Absolute same. It's, in, it's, I get why she didn't win, but it's... It's an injustice that that's not what she has her Oscar for, because that's... Yeah, I probably wouldn't even nominate the other nominees and Anne Hathaway as the, like, clear winner of that lineup to me. I I never quite feel bad about Angelina Jolie's nomination for Changeling, even though it's certainly not a film or a performance that I feel like is, is spectacular. But I was happy to see her back nominated after all those years that you know happened in between girl interrupted in this where i've i i thought it was on a celebrity level i liked having her sort of like back up in the mix and the year before she had been so good in a mighty heart and wasn't nominated and yeah i was happy to see her melissa leo this was like we didn't know melissa leo at this point melissa leo was she had been on homicide on television and she had been she was in 21, in 21 grams. grams and people thought she was just like oh this like mm-hmm. supporting actress who like isn't really a thing was so good in 21 grams and then Fro- and this is before the consider of it all right that's the thing is like the melissa leo we know now who was like 
a 12 out of 10 on the intensity scale at all times and is just like will go so wild in a movie but this was a different like melissa leo at this point was just like understated character actress with a lead role in a very indie movie frozen river i'm pretty sure was a sundance movie um yes and frozen river was one of those sort of like cause celebs of the film types who were just like let this small little movie get some oscar success that and the visitor i think were very much in tandem that year mm-hmm. in terms of like what people were were hoping for so yeah i think melissa leo probably nips that one at the end and uh, sort of knocks off sally hawkins but it was a really competitive year for best actress that year it's just to pull it back to original screenplay a little bit. It is very strange um, how often I have to remind myself uh, that this lineup included uh, two snubs, for lack of a better word, of two like Oscar staples between the Coen brothers and Woody, and Woody Allen. Allen. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Yep. And an eventual screenplay winner in Tom McCarthy. It was, yeah, there was mm-hmm. a lot going on. Uh, Chris, we really blew right past at the beginning of this a milestone for this episode. Uh, I believe several milestones, if I am correct. Oh, well, yes, but one that, uh, that, that we'll be commemorating. This, this is a movie that is chock full of people who we have talked about a bunch on this at Oscar Buzz. This is our fourth J.K. Simmons movie. It is our third brad pitt movie our third richard jenkins movie our third elizabeth marvel movie oddly our first francis mcdormand movie which is uh and maybe our first tilda i think i made that note as well which is like super surprising but the only person in this movie who has made it to the level of our prestigious six timers club now is in one scene of this movie, <laughs> although you hear him in another, when Francis and Clooney go to the movies, they watch, uh, what is it called? Uh, Coming Up Daisy. <laughs> that poster. Coming Up Daisy starring an unseen Claire Danes, who would have become our seven-timer. poster. Yeah, but does not count. You won't count her because she doesn't speak. Right. You don't see her in action. You only see her on a poster. And or else she would be a seven timer. But our six timer is her co-star in this fake movie, Dermot Mulroney, our six time uh, this had Oscar buzz appearer. What we do here around these parts, when an actor or actress makes its six appearances on our show, we do a little quiz. I give Chris a little quiz about the Heck six movies yeah. that make up uh, that actor's this had Oscar buzz filmography. Chris, do you want to take a little quiz? I would love. A little, large, medium size, whatever you're throwing at me. Quiz. A Dermot Mulroney quiz. The greatest of quizzes is a Dermot Mulroney quiz. So, okay, your answers <laughs> here will come from the bank of the six movies of his that we've done. So, a reminder those are The Family Stone, How to Make an American Quilt, He's in J. Edgar, He's in Truth. He is in Zodiac, and now for uh, his sixth, he is in Burn After Reading. So your answers will come from that bank. Fantastic. Okay. So first question. The only one of those movies that features a real-life female character on the poster. Truth. Yes. Correct. Uh, Kate Blanchett is Mary Mapes in Truth. All right. The only two of these movies that were written by Oscar-winning screenwriters. 
Ooh, Oscar-winning screenwriters, Burn After Reading, yep. and uh, it's not Zodiac. It is definitely not Family Stone. It is... Um, uh, 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 how to make an American quilt? I'm trying to remember what the other options are. How to make an American quilt? J. Ed. Oh, it's J. Edgar because it's Dustin Lance Black. J. Edgar, written by Dustin Lance Black, Oscar winner this uh, very year that we're talking about, 2008. And then the Coens won screenplay for No Country for Old Men. All right, the only one of these movies to premiere at TIFF. Uh, truth. Truth. Yes, saw it there. The only one of these movies to premiere at Venice. Burn After Reading. Yes. The only one of these movies to premiere at AFI. J. Edgar. Yes. Well done. Okay. You're killing this so far. The only one of these movies that doesn't star an Oscar-winning actress. Ooh. um, It's not J. Edgar. Oh, it's not Family Stone. It's not uh, How to Make an American Quilt. Um, It's not this. What do we have left? Uh, Zodiac. Zodiac, yes. Uh, <laughs> not a whole lot of actresses in that movie. Not a whole lot of actresses. The Family Stone has Diane Keaton. How to Make an American Quilt has Ellen Burstyn and Anne Bancroft. J. Edgar has Judy Dench. Truth has Kate Blanchett. Burn After Reading has Frances McDormand and Tilda Swinton. Yes, okay. The only one whose cinematographer was a woman. Oh, um... Sure shit isn't J. Edgar. Um... Is it How to Make an American Quilt? It is not. Oh. Um, how to Make an American Quilt directed by and written by a woman, but not uh Exactly. That's where I was going. Um, is it Truth? It's Truth. Mandy Walker is yep. the cinematographer on Truth. Cool. All right. The only one produced by Amblin Entertainment. Uh, it's How to Make an American Quilt? It is. Very good. Yep. I thought that would be a real stumper. Okay. The only two to earn at least $60 million at the domestic box office. Uh, Burn After Reading yes. and... um. Oh, God. It can't be J. Edgar. Um, How to Make an American Quilt? Uh, no. Okay. Um, How to Make an American Quilt was like $23 million at the box office. Oh, okay. What about the Family Stone? Yes, both the there Family you. Stone and Burn After Reading made about sixty million, a little bit more, at the domestic box office. Um, the others were How to Make an American Quilt had about twenty three, J. Edgar thirty seven, Zodiac thirty three, and Truth, alas, with a two point five million at the domestic box office. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, where to go? Domestic box. All right. The only two whose and credit is an Oscar winner. Um. J. Edgar. J. Edgar and Judy Dench. Um, I feel like Zodiac is and Brian Cox, so I don't think it's that. Um, I can't imagine that Family Stone is and Diane Keaton. Um, Although we found out, as I texted you earlier in the week, that Easy A is and Emma Stone, which is the wildest crazy. shit. Like, Oh, it it's... um. It's burn after reading because it's Anne Brad Pitt. It's Anne Brad Pitt. Very good. If yes. you needed a sure sign that he was going to uh, die in the movie. Easy A's wild. Easy A's credits are all alphabetical. And then it's and Emma Stone. And I'm just like, why wouldn't you just start with Emma Stone and then do alphabetical? And then do the obvious thing, which is this is a with Patricia Clarkson and Stanley Tucci or the other way around. Like, that's the most obvious way to do that. Like, 
that movie. That movie still frustrates me. I'm not going to get into it. Okay. Um, <laughs> Emma Stone is great. So much of that movie is bad. A lot of it's good, but so much of it is bad. Okay. Um, and credit. Oh, the only three where our man of the hour, Dermot Mulroney, uh, his name is on the poster. And by the poster, I mean in that credit block that happens on the poster. Uh, Family Stone. Correct. Zodiac. Correct. And Truth. Incorrect. How to Make an American Quilt. Yes, he's the love interest in How to Make an American Quilt. Yes, okay. The only one that opened before December. Zodiac. Yes, in March. Wait. Or no, sorry, not December. Wasn't like October? September. The only one that opened before September, I wrote that oh, down wrong. Oh, Zodiac. Yes. Zodiac. Yeah, all the other ones were fall fall to winter movies. Um, Wait, I wrote this down. Family Stone was December. How yeah. to Make an American Quilt was October. J. Edgar, November. Truth was October. And Burn After Reading was September. So yes, the only one to open before the fall was Zodiac. The only two that star people who were in the movie Heart and Souls. <laughs> Okay, uh, that's uh, Elizabeth Shue, Robert Downey Jr., Alfre Woodard, um, Charles Grodin? Yes, Charles Grodin. Um, <laughs> okay, um, oh boy. J. Edgar? Nope. Okay. Um, Family Stone? Nope. Oh, Jesus. Four uh, more. Zodiac. Zodiac. Yes, Robert Downey Jr. is in Zodiac. Oh, uh, duh. Of course. Of course. Um, Burn After Reading is like Richard Jenkins in Heart and Souls? He is not. Although he would have been a great fit for Heart and Souls. Oh, absolutely. What a lovely film. Yes. Um, How to Make an American Quilt. Yes, because... Okay. Oh, Alfre Woodard. Alfre Woodard is in How to Make an American Duh. Quilt. Very good. Yes. Okay. Living legend Alfre Woodard. The only two of these movies that star people who were in Okja. <laughs> okay. Okja is Paul Dano. Um, uh, 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 Steven Yun. Um, <laughs> Lily Collins. Tilda Swinton. So burn after reading. Correct. Uh, and Jake Gyllenhaal. So Zodiac. Correct. Well done. Yes. Okay. The only two that star people who were in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, Burn After Reading because of Georges Clooney. And Brad Pitt. Yep. And Brad Pitt. Um, So many people. Um, Julia Roberts was in Ocean's Eleven from my my best friend's wedding, also starring Dermot Mulroney. Yes. Um, uh, It can't be true. Truth. Oh, no, it is truth because Topher Grace is in Ocean's Eleven. Yes, indeed. Topher Grace is in Ocean's Eleven. Well done. Good job with that. Okay. The only one that is under 100 minutes. Burn After Reading. Burn After Reading. A nice, efficient uh, 96, I think. It was, uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Here we go. The big ones. The only three that were AARP movies for Grown Ups nominees. Uh, Burn After Reading. Yes. Uh, The Family Stone. Yes. Um, Was... Oh, it's gotta be J. Edgar. J. Edgar, Judy Dench for J. Edgar. Yes. And then finally, the only two that were SAG nominees in any category. J. Edgar. J. Edgar had the double nominations for DiCaprio and uh, Army Hammer. Um... 
I don't think it's truth. Um, it's not burn after reading. It's um, it w- oh no, it uh, ensemble nominee uh, how to make an American quilt. Ensemble nominee how to make an American quilt. Very good, very good job with the Dermot Mulroney quiz, Chris. I like it. I uh, I uh, I could remember the movies that we talked about more. This time. <laughs> yes, I, exactly. I bombed the Merrill one. I am the only uh, homosexual who will bomb a Merrill quiz and do well on a Dermot Mulroney quiz. Uh, you know, it takes all kinds, Chris. It takes all kinds. So let's talk Indeed. about those movies for Grown Ups Awards nominations since I brought them up. Indeed. A screenplay nominee, a Best Actress nominee, and a Supporting Actor nominee. Not for Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt had to have been 50 at this point because their nominees all have to be over 50, right? Maybe oh, is that the 50. actual rule? No, yeah, he you was have he... to be 50 and older. He... Okay, so this is part of the chaos of whatever awards buzz did exist for Burn After Reading. And besides the screenplay, I don't really think there was any kind of serious whatever. But the fact that at the AARPs, and again, we're going to treat them as the serious precursor that they are, the AARPs nominate Francis McDormand and John Malkovich. The BAFTAs nominate Tilda Swinton and Brad Pitt. And I think this was part of the thing was like, nobody could agree on what was the standout performance in this movie. If there was just one, there's a chance that maybe there there would be some kind of momentum built behind it. But I think nobody could agree on the best performance, even though I think it's clearly Brad Pitt. But, like, there's a lot lot to go around in this movie. Right. So, yeah. So what was what won in those categories? Give me, give me, give me <laughs> the, the The dish. screenplay category, uh, fell, uh, Burn After Reading, was nominated against Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Doubt, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, and the winner, the most unwell, uh, is Changeling. Oh no! They love Clint Eastwood so much. <sighs> Holy yeah. moly, changeling! Uh, I feel like we've talked about this very, very, very bizarre uh, supporting actor lineup before, but I can't remember when. Their supporting actor lineup: uh, John Malkovich for Burn After Reading, Pierce Brosnan for Mamma Mia. <gasps> no! Holy uh, oh, shit! The, yes. Yes, uh, Dennis Quaid for The Express, football movie The Express. Wow. Um, Bill Murray for City of Ember, children's movie that um, you cannot gaslight me into believing that that movie (laughs) happened. Um, And the winner, who would definitely at least be on my ballot, this is a great call. I don't think anybody else made this call or even nominated him all season. Bill Irwin for Rachel Getting Married. Should have been more. So this is the thing about Rachel Getting Married. That's a beautiful nomination. Rachel Getting Married, like, did well at the AARP movies for grownups. And that's why they are a serious precursor. My hot take that isn't even a hot take because it's just true. Like, it shouldn't be controversial. Rachel Getting Married should have been the doubt of the 08 Oscars, which is to say that all major cat, like principal cast members in Rachel Getting Married should have been nominated. It should have been Hathaway, Rosemary DeWitt, Deborah Winger, Bill Irwin. Like, those should have been... I don't been. know if I can get there with Deborah Winger, but yes. Winger's so good, Chris. Plus, it's, she's back! It's no, Winger's she's back! she's great, she's great, but like... She should have gotten the, you know, we love you and we, we've we always loved you and your turbulent sure, brilliance sure, sure, kind sure, of a nomination. Sure, sure. She slaps Anne Hathaway. Never happening all season is bananas. Um, Yeah. But anyway, then Best Actress, which Frances McDormand, Burn After Reading, Annette Bening for The Women. Um, (gasps) Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) 
<laughs> no way. I'll we got to do the remake of the women for this podcast. We really we'll do. definitely do it. We'll get into it. Um, uh, Living legend Alfre Woodard in Tyler Perry's The Family That Prays, sure. which the AARP movie for grownups named Best Buddy Picture of 2008. Okay, that's a wild distinction, but I will say, uh, friend of the Isn't podcast. Is a and- drama? It is. I'm pretty sure. Uh, friend of the podcast and then former guest uh, Nick Davis, I remember really liking that movie. So I give that movie uh, some respect. I would, I would buy that being a good movie. Um, I haven't seen it. It I sure mean, does I seem it's like Kathy a drama. Kathy Bates and Alfred Woodard. Why yeah. wouldn't I see that? But um, the whole buddy picture, it's her and Kathy Bates, and Kathy Bates is a mean old racist, and like that's the whole... We categorize buddy pictures as comedies, right? Like, this was yeah, a serious drama. a buddy Wasn't drama. First, I'm trying to like, think of like Tyler what an Perry example drama? of a buddy drama would be exactly... I'm having trouble. <laughs> Tweet uh, at us. Tweet at us with nominee. your favorite buddy drama. <laughs> your buddy dramas. Um, uh, this podcast is a buddy drama. For sure. Um, uh, other nominees. Catherine Deneuve for A Christmas Tale. Wow. Which I will, I will catch up to this holiday season. Who directed that? That's, that's one of the big Frenchy directors, Ooh, right? One of the big ones. It's not like... Is it Claude Chabrol? I'm... Oh, no, it's Desplechant. Uh, Arnaud Desplechant. All right. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, we are Philistines on this episode. <laughs> um, uh, and the winner for Best Actress at AARP Movie for Grown Ups, uh, very predictable Meryl Streep for Doubt. Sure, of course. That's 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 Not Mamma Mia. I feel like choice. they should have given her the Mamma Mia nomination. I feel like Mamma Mia stands for what uh, the M4Gs stand for. I also think Doubt stands for what the M4Gs stand for, though. Like, I mean, sure. A, a, an old nun with gravitas? Like, yeah, they're gonna go for that, for sure. <laughs> Alright, I want to go through my little notebook and see if there's anything else. Loved uh, focus features. One of these times, and we're, we don't have enough time to do it, but like, I want to dig into working title films at some point, because that is a yeah. production label that shows up on a ton of films, and they've just done a lot of really good movies and have a, had a lot of uh, Oscar success, and you never really... They've never like categorized or uh, sort of uh, crystallized themselves in the in the public consciousness the way that like an mm-hmm. Annapurna did or something like that. But um, res- it's, they they produced a lot of like your favorite British movies of the early two thousands, like Bridget Jones, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, exactly, exactly. Focus this year though, like clearly Milk was their big player. They put clearly. all of their energy into it, and then like late on in the season, they pushed to get in Bruges recognized and i feel like that kind of put burn after reading under the rug those were the bit, right especially those were the right ponies to pick though i think for this oscar season like that good on them but when you have like your stars of the movie like uh pushing other things like both tilda and uh brad pitt have benjamin button right like the coens are have like no interest in doing the dog and pony show Correct. to get oscar nominations Correct. like yeah even Malkovich had Changeling to uh, to push, mm-hmm. right? So, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I remember there being a little bit of Oscar buzz about that performance, about, like, if Changeling happens, is Malkovich going to get nominated? Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. Oh, I mentioned Clooney Tilda very briefly, but, like, let's pour one out for Tilda Swinton uh, mentioning the bat nipples and the bat suit explicitly in her oscar speech <laughs> when she again a delightful oscar speech where she just like and george clooney you know the seriousness and the dedication to your art seeing you climb into that 
rubber bat suit from Batman and Robin, the one with the nipples, every morning under your costume, on the set, off the set, hanging upside down at lunch. You rock man. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And clearly, like, there's, like, there's rapport there. Like, I'm, I'm sort of bummed that they haven't made more movies together since then, because they clearly seem to have gotten along and have... Well, Clooney is, clear, is the noted prankster, yep. and the only way to pull the piss out of him is to bring up his Batman. Yeah. And she knew it, and, like, it was, it was very funny. One of my favorite moments at an Oscar. You're right that it's a great speech, and she seems very flummoxed and surprised. And, like, it's one of the Oscar speeches where, like, not to project feelings onto people that we do not know, but, like, you know, there's just some Oscar speeches where you can just tell that someone is a, an authentically good person. Yes. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Um, just even the way, like, all of her phrasings where she mentions, you know, looks at the statue and talks about its buttocks. Uh, it must be said, yeah. the buttocks. Yeah. Um, Frances McDormand in this movie, on the phone with her health insurance company, repeatedly saying agent to try and get a, a real person on the phone, <laughs> is that is absolutely is me, me in a nutshell. Bye-bye. I have done that so many different times. It's so if relatable. If I have to call a hotline, I just, like, bark customer service. Yep. I do not care what your prompts are. Yep. Just put me on the phone with yep um but, 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 oh <laughs> when brad pitt says uh, report instead of rapport and the how angry that makes malkovich's character is <laughs> a beautifully funny moment also the part where malkovich tries to like says they're in the car and he's just like you come over here on your fucking schwinn and brad pitt just starts laughing and he goes you think that's a schwinn it's so stupid <laughs> but it's so funny um bah, 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 bah. oh i want to talk about david rash for like half a second david rash is is a character really actor in this, in this movie he's the counterpart to jk simmons he's the one trying to explain this this is a good era for him playing government functionaries in movies that are essentially about the farce of again the bush administration because the next year he's in in the loop which is a yes. perfect movie which with a fantastic <laughs> ensemble cast and he is he's not quite the guileless character that he is in Burn After Reading and, and in the loop he's really rancid and really um just sort of vile and and mean but like there's a scene where he and uh Peter Capaldi are going at it that is just absolutely vicious and what a great movie. We don't Injected talk about it into my now. veins. Yeah, it's good. Um oh so the fate of Richard Jenkins' character in this movie, I wanted to talk about very briefly. Um, he's <laughs> the one purely good character in this movie, and he gets killed in a senseless thing where, like, Malkovich completely misunderstands his intentions. He initially thinks he's the guy that's sleeping with his wife, and then eventually he thinks he's in cahoots with Brad Pitt and Francis McDormand, neither of which are true. Richard Jenkins has really no idea what's going on, and he ends up pursuing this partly because he's in love with Francis McDormand and partly because he just like wants to know what's going on but he's just like a purely good person and he's one of those purely good people in Cohen Brothers movies who get killed that really I think helps ratchet up the reputation for the Coens as directors and filmmakers who hate their characters there's always this talk about like to what degree do the Cohen Brothers dislike their characters and part of it is that they'll write these like really good characters i'm thinking of like mrs lundegaard in uh fargo and uh donnie the the steve buscemi character in kelly the mcdonald Big in no country kelly mcdonald in no country who are just like these pure souls amid 
corruption and and vacuousness and, and right and they all end up getting killed and it's always so heartbreaking and but i think rather than sort of act as proof that the cohen's don't care about their characters or don't like their characters i think these are the ones that prove to me that they do they just always see this as a world in which the good-hearted get trampled by the like you know in the debris of what's going on with these less good-hearted people well and also like they like a lot of their movies are like if not religious like speak to like the randomness the like unfeelingness of god <laughs> that is their perspective so it's like right. there is a like a there's a god shot in this movie for sure like when we pan, like zoom down oh from, totally from the um, heavens well, and also that, like, the order of the universe and the order of human existence is not necessarily that good people don't suffer. <laughs> right, right. Exactly, exactly. That's I a think... very Cohen's trope. Yes. Uh, so, my other note for this movie, since you mentioned the, like, God shot of the movie, yeah. the opening and closing uh, title font of this movie is the same font as the, like, DVD anti-piracy ads <laughs> that you used to see and everything. Like, you wouldn't steal a car. What a presumptive thing uh, to say about me. I know, I know. Why are you jumping to that? Why are we, why are we just going to that level? You don't level? know me. You don't know my life right exactly maybe i would steal a car maybe i yeah maybe i would steal another mode of transportation you don't know yeah, maybe i'd steal a train <laughs> yeah and make a movie about that one then you don't know me mpaa right also what convinces me that stealing a car or a train or whatever would be a good idea the movies have so sorry mm-hmm. like ipso facto all right anyway um anything else before don't pirate anything people we're joking no right um, yeah be good citizens be good uh consumers of be media. good cinephiles yes Anything else before we hop into IMDb? Uh, uh, I don't think so. Um, this was a, a nice Cohen's conversation. There's other Cohen's movies that I'm sure we will do in the future. Yes, good Cohen's conversation. Cool. IMDb game. Should I yeah. explain the IMDb game? Sure. All right. So, guys, the IMDb game. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game. We challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. That's not enough. It just becomes a free-for-all of hints and the randomness of God upon us. Um, Indeed. Perhaps we'll be axed to death. I don't know perhaps perhaps that will happen a hatchet wielding maniac conceivable yeah all right joseph would you like to uh give or guess first i suppose it's my choice because it's uh i uh or what is it i don't know i don't know we're very confused no i think i was supposed to read the spiel and that's why we're confused as to the order of operations of this but you know what our gobbledygook of memes and uh the uh four seasons landscape (laughs) company i am i am mentally never leaving the four seasons uh, landscaping company uh, in fact okay it's the island of lost truly and we have to go back okay I uh picked one for you. I we are all waiting rather impatiently for the next Cohen Brothers movie, which is their uh adaptation of Macbeth with Denzel Hell Washington yeah. and Francis McDormand. We are all super excited. 
But I delved into their last movie, which I was not uniformly a fan of. I thought it had its moments, but uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs was, to me, not great. But uh, one segment that I really liked co-starred one Mr. Liam Neeson. And Uh, I'm going to give you Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. The problem with Liam Neeson is how many indistinguishable action movies on various modes of transportation are in his known for? It's a good question. It's a great question. Um, so I'll just say Schindler's List. Correct. His Oscar nomination for Schindler's List. Yeah. Um, okay. So that one... Makes sense. I'm just going to say Taken. Shockingly, it's not. Wow. I know. Okay. Um, The Dark Knight. Or not The Dark Knight, uh, Batman Begins. Not Batman Begins either. So that's two strikes already. Your years now are 2004, 2010, and 2011. 2004 is Kinsey, which is is wild, because I didn't even get to things like Love Actually. Um, Right. Kinsey, which he is great in. Great, should have been nominated. Absolutely. Your other years are 2010 and 2011. Okay, so is that before Taken? For your reference, Taken was 2008. Okay, so this is like kind of the rise of action Liam Neeson. I'm gonna guess that there is, uh, that these are gonna be action movies as well. Um, is one of them The Gray? Yes. Oh Liam Neeson straps uh, tiny liquor bottles to his knuckles and tries to, to punch, punch a, wolf. a wolf in gray. Yes. Awesome. Perhaps um, a movie that is as much of a fuck you to the audience at the end as Burn After Reading because you wait the whole goddamn movie for him to fist fight a wolf and it cuts to the credits just as it's about to happen. I don't it's, think it's a terrible movie, but the people no, that I don't. Like, stump hard for it, like the bros that stump hard for that movie, I'm like... Okay. I feel like that stopped happening after a while. I feel like I don't hear anybody sort of like riding for the gray It should continue to stop happening. Um, to my money, nonstop is more fun than the gray. But you know if what? If you want me to be a real bitch, let's talk about the gray. Um, <laughs> well, let's get is you the other this one. The A team. It is the A team. You that jerk! I can't believe you stupid. got that. You should I have been. Remember any other action movie one. from that time that he was in? I know that there's more, but like I remember the A team showed up for somebody like Bradley Cooper one time. Wow. Other action movies around that time. He's in both Clash and Wrath of the Titans. Um, he is in <laughs> Battleship, the notorious film Battleship. Uh, Rihanna Vehicle. Yes. He's in um, the aforementioned Nonstop, which is uh, taken on a plane, which I really liked. Unknown is another one of those movies where he wakes up and he doesn't know who he is, and Diane Kruger is familiar to him. There is uh, A Walk Among the Tombstones, which had a scene filmed across the street from my old apartment in Hell's Kitchen that took them, like, literally the better part of two days to film him walking out the front of an apartment building. It oh, was Jesus. a real lesson in uh, in how long it takes people to make movies. He's in that movie Run All Night. Eh, they all kind of blend together. Yeah. All right. All right, indeed. 
Mr. Neeson, come back to uh, real movies. For you, Joseph, I have someone who uh, was a precursor nominee this season. The star of the Best Picture winner of the season we're talking about. Talking about Mr. Dev Patel. Ah, SAG nominee Dev Patel, as we were mentioning. Okay. Well, obviously, Slumdog Millionaire is one of them. Slumdog is one of them. No television? No television. So no skins. Okay. Um, Devastatingly handsome Dev Patel. Okay. Um, Lion. Lion, correct. He's so goddamn attractive in Lion. I can't (laughs) deal with it! Another film where he's the lead and he gets a supporting nomination, which... Don't get me started on the lead supporting designations in Lion, or I will be there all day. He is playing the lead character. I don't care how much of the film he is in. Co-lead shared with... uh, The kid. The the cute little kid. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think that the David Copperfield one is probably too recent. The terrible David Copperfield one. I think it's fine. One of the worst movies I've ever seen at any tip. Your, Your hatred for that movie is the wildest thing like the 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 degrees of uh, antipathy it you is have so for that poorly film. made like i want to be Ugh. on board with everything that that movie is trying to do i you're thought wild it was one. an assault on my eyes you're wild for this one i can't I thought most of the performances were embarrassing oh my god you're so you're so up i'm a, a grouch about it's a movie i'm just gonna be a grouch about yeah grouch clearly about. Oh god. uh you're right that it's too new though Yes. All right. Um, so other Dev Patel stuff. Also, no TV means no the newsroom. R.I.P. Um, he's in the newsroom? He's in the newsroom. He's like their tech. He's their like uh, internet geek. He's their token young person. Interesting. Um, yes. So you can imagine all of the uh, storylines that uh, Aaron Sorkin whips up about uh, young, the youngs in that movie. Okay. Anyway. Um, oh, is it? Um, Hotel Mumbai? No. Damn. Okay. One strike. Dev Patel. I'm trying to think of like, oh, oh, oh my God. I, I'm so stupid for not getting there first. It's Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. It is not Best Exotic Marigold Shut Hotel. Shut the fuck up. I hate you. <laughs> I Dev hate Patel, you. Noted star of uh, movies about hotels. Um He's not in Grand I Budapest. I was as soon as he I should be in Grand Budapest because he is like hotel actor. Um, as soon as it's I not. thought of that, I was like, "Well, it's clearly both the best exotic Marigold Hotel and the second best exotic Marigold Hotel." Which, we by really the way, need to do best exotic Marigold Hotel. Okay, yes, if you just want to have we'll me get there. just weeping decency <laughs> tears for two hours, I will talk Piss about me the best off and I will, uh, I'll do that to you. I love that movie so much. Also, the fact I that they titled it. the second movie, Second Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, is a triumph for triumph for populism because gen- <laughs> genuinely everybody on Twitter who was like, they should call it the second one, the second best exotic Marigold Hotel, and then they listened to us in the same way that Now You See Me refused to listen to us when we all said that the second one should be called now you don't it's sometimes good people get listened to is all i'm saying is all i'm saying that's that's uh, i i i um i join you in your plight um your remaining years for dev patel are 2010 and 2015 all right so 2010 not too long after 
uh, Slumdog, and 2015 is the year before Lion. Correct. All right. All right. Where are we going with this? Um, 2010. I feel like 2010 is when they started putting him in American movies that were like semi um, anonymous, mm. like thriller type things. And he's like the third no. or fourth lead. No. Is he the lead no. in that movie? Uh, I would bet that he's first build. I will double check that. All right, he, and then 2015. He is a uh, second build, which makes sense. Second build, second build, second build. Is it a romance? No. It's a genre movie. Horror? No. Comedy? No. Sci-fi? <laughs> Sci-fi action uh, would-be franchise. Oh, from He's a director a... who is known for genre movies, but had uh, uh, not really done franchises uh, in a way that was like IP previously. He's not in Pacific Rim, is he? It is not Pacific Rim. This is a disaster. This is like a um, a oh, regularly oh, made oh, movie. Oh, I never remember this movie because I never saw it. It's The Last Airbender. Last Airbender. He is the villain of Last Airbender. Right. Right. Your 2015 movie, not a disaster, but definitely a punchline. Drama? No. A director's follow-up to a uh, Best Picture nominee. Oh. Best Picture nominee... From, like, bel- the year before? Or from a few mm, years before? Uh, a few years. I forget if this was the direct follow-up or, like, the second movie they made after their Best Picture nominee. I'm going to look that up. No, it's the second movie they made after their uh, Best Picture nominee. Okay. God, and now we're talking about the top ten era of Best Pictures, so that's... Also a genre movie. Also a genre movie. Also sci-fi? Sci-fi. He's not in uh, the uh, the Prometheus follow-up. Uh, he is not. Uh, Dev Patel is the second build character, or the second build actor. The first build actor is Mocap. Oh, shit. And they like, oh. No, Are it's you not getting like. That? The it's title like is Victor a the title is a punchline. The title of the movie inspired a certain meme that you have terrorized me with in person. Ben is back. <laughs> what was the Ben is back uh, meme that you terrorized me with? Oh, where you lean over to the person and you say that's the thing. Um, yes. What movie, uh, to my knowledge, in- instigated that meme? Oh, shit. Um, the first time I ever saw this meme was in reference to this movie. And it's sci-fi. It is sci-fi. And he's the second lead. He's the second build actor. So is the lead like an alien? The mocap guy is an mm, alien. Not an alien, but you are close. 
You're close in genre, for sure. Not an alien, but a creature of some kind? Yes, the first build the first build actor that is in mocap is the title character of the movie. Oh. You're going to be really mad. <laughs> You're going to be mad at me for even making you think about this movie. Oh my god, it's it's Chappie. It is Chappie. Mother, he's his going to take for my it. date to Chappie and lean over and say, "That's Chappie." Oh my god. I, I <laughs> Charlton Copley, noted star of Chappie. Okay, can we talk about the buyer's remorse? to deal with Neil Blomkamp and just Uh the fact that like we all got so excited about district nine, a movie that does not hold up as well as you at all. Um, I think it a little bit, I think there's still some stuff Mm. in district nine that I'm just like, all right, this is some good stuff, but like it does not hold up as a best picture nominee at all. And it was the first year of the 10 and they wanted to have something real populist. And they kind of bristled at the idea that they should nominate Star Star Trek, Trek. but it ended up being district nine because that felt more indie and, and uh, artsy. And then he just like the the succession of middle fingers. God, we're talking about a lot about middle fingers, but like the back to back of Elysium and Chappie, where it's just like you thought this guy was good, you dummies! Like so. <laughs> oh my god, Chappie. Okay, Chappie is a robot, right? Yes, Chappie is a robot, but like under his own power, like like he's fully autonomous. I don't know. He's supposed to basically be E.T. as a robot. How is Hugh Jackman not the lead of that movie? He's the villain. He's the villain. Okay. Chappy. Fucking Chappy. <laughs> what a year. Chappy. What a time. What that a was year. early 2015. Reading. That was before 2015 started to become real toxic when, like, I feel like Trump really seeped in towards the end of 2015 and everything felt that was when it all started to feel so dark, but like early 2015, we didn't know what we were in for. So we were still just like making chappy jokes. Sigourney Weaver's in chappy. Hell yeah. She's in chappy. You don't remember anything. I've never seen chappy, my friend. Why would I have seen chappy? Bringing chappy back into. Yeah, you should. You Um, should. Oh boy. I think that's our episode. Burn After Reading. Francis McDormand. Probable nominee this year. Yeah, for Nomadland, I think I would pencil her in. For sure. I would not pencil her in for a third win, the way that some people think. I think but... it's possible. I think it's possible. Anything is possible, says Kevin Garnett and me. <laughs> True. Uh, yeah, Joe, that's our episode. Uh, we'll burn this after we're done recording. <laughs> Guys, we are taking, uh, once again, we're taking our listeners' choice submissions. Tweet at us at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz or email us at hadoscarbuzz at gmail.com. Remember, no Oscar nominations must have been in some type of Oscar consideration, whether it's predictions or uh, actual campaigns. Uh, one vote per person, please. Oh, and nothing from uh, 2019. Yes, we gotta stick also to uh, our rules. You'll don't worry, guys. You're getting cats episode soon. Just cats episode like, will happen. Yeah, that's not your Christmas present. If anybody ca- out there can remember the exact date that I quoted for cats episode, by the way, can you tweet that at us? Because it's on a post-it note at my apartment that I'm currently not living at, so I don't know what I quoted, and I want to be consistent. So if anybody can remember, I mentioned it on an episode, and I for the life of me can't remember what one. But if it sticks in your head, uh, the date that I quoted for cats episode, please tell me help me yeah 
uh, if you too have it on a post-it note. Right, exactly. If you are <laughs> anticipating it as much as we are and you wrote it down, we would appreciate it. Cats episode's going to be a, a solid uh, five hours, right? Oh, Cats episode is going to be an extravaganza. It's going to be something else. <laughs> it's going to be a ball of <laughs> uh, jellical variety. I'm going to actually, what I'll do is I will describe in detail my uh, screening of, was it Julieta? What was the movie that I was watching at a screening that I walked out of and the Cats trailer had dropped and I just like wept in a, in a schnippers? <laughs> As I was like, drinking no, you a saw milkshake. it after you saw Pain and Glory. That's what it was. It was Pain it, and Glory. I knew it really, was an Almodovar. Really. I knew I got my year wrong. It was Pain and Glory. You're absolutely right. Thank you. Um, we'll amazing. save it for the cat's episode. We'll say we'll save it. We'll save it. Also, uh, my reference to my finest tweet I've ever had in my life. That was a joke for all of two people at the time. Um, but yes, the cat's episode coming soon. Uh, but that was our burn after reading episode. If you want more, this had Oscar buzz. You can check out the Tumblr at this had You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can listeners find more of you and your shit? Yeah, you can find my shit at uh, Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. You can also find me on Letterboxd, Joe Reed, Reed spelled the exact same way. I am now past my big watch a bunch of 2000 Oscar movies project and my big watch a bunch of drag queen movies project because we were on screen drafts. Go listen to that one, by the way. Yes, go listen to both of time. episodes. Yes, really, really fun week for us of doing guest spots on podcasts. And you should listen to both Little Gold Men and screen drafts. We had a ball. Um, but now I will be able to get to the task of catching up on all the 2019 movies that I, or 2020 movies rather, that I still need to watch. Ooh, so, I'll send you a list. Uh, my letterbox should be popping at some point all right cool i'm gonna work on that list of things that you need to watch uh meanwhile i am on twitter at chris v file that's f-e-i-l also on letterboxd under the same name we would like to thank kyle cummings for his fantastic artwork and david gonzalez and gavin mevious for their technical guidance please remember to rate and review us on apple Podcasts, google play stitcher wherever else you get your podcasts which now includes spotify follow us on spotify um a five-star review in particular really helps us out with apple podcast visibility so please uh tell us where we need uh no not not that not the plastic surgery not the fracking uh tell us where um um uh, yeah, just uh, tell us where to keep our secret shit. Um, give us a five-star review. We love you guys. <laughs> uh, that's all for this week. Uh, we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. You were working without a net there. Truly, yep. that was yep. Uh, yep. Forgot the else. ending joke. <laughs> Forgot the ending joke. <laughs> all right, I'm going to stop recording. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's so nice.